this is a paper about a religious concept of evil. And what's what I've got here? A couple of things. So first, this this, this uh, quote is just to get you into the mood. So um, something um, Bible. Um, and but what I want to my, my starting point is this. Um, there's big literature in analytic philosophy of philosophers offering various definitions of evil. And there's a lot of these definitions on the market. Um, now, one thing that's striking is that none of these characters ever seem to um, uh, give religion a go. And that's really <coughs> odd because, uh, on the face of it, it looks like uh, religion has got a lot to do with uh, conceptions of evil. And, and what tends to happen is the, the idea of talking about religion in the context of evil is dismissed, and it's dismissed this way. Um, so here's a couple of people who uh, run this line. They say, well, look, we're worried about evil. It involves obscure metaphysical and theological commitments. Um, and this seems to be used as an excuse not to go there. There be dragons. Um, so I want to go where no analytic philosopher that I know of has gone before, <coughs> and try and uh, articulate a religious conception of evil. Now, um, I should say a couple of things here. I'm not denying that there are legitimate secular uses of the term evil. That's not my game. Although I think um, once we uh, have a couple of sort of competing definitions of evil, that becomes problematic. So I'll talk about that a little at the end. And the other thing is I'm not interested in a theological conception of evil. I'm interested in a religious conception. And I'll explain that distinction as I go along. And in particular, what I'm going to be drawing on is uh, recent work in the burgeoning area of the cognitive science of religion. So I'm looking at scientific explanations of religiosity uh, rather than theological explanations uh, of evil. So, different game. Okay. Now, this is a. Uh, I've not actually seen this film but uh, it is a film inspired by Robinson Crusoe, and the main characters are, like in the book, Robinson Crusoe and Friday. Now, if you've read the book or you've heard of it, you might know that what happens is Robinson Crusoe um, saves Friday from cannibals, and um, then Friday is kind of forever grateful to him and effectively becomes his servant. He teaches Friday um, basic English, and then converts him to Christianity, as, as you would. Um, now, uh, Robinson Crusoe makes rapid progress with Friday. Friday is worshipping someone called Benamaki. And Robinson Crusoe convinces him that the Christian God is a more powerful God than Benamaki, and therefore more worthy of worship. However, Robinson Crusoe runs into trouble when he tries to do an additional thing. And what he's trying to do, and I'm not going to read you all of this, um, but <coughs> straight out of the, uh, the original, what he tries to do is convince him to adopt a kind of a, a Manichaean worldview, whereby um, God is in competition with the devil for your soul. Um, God, uh, the devil is always up to no good. He's trying to, uh, he's trying to corrupt you. Uh, he's uh, trying to win you over. And it's all part of a grand design to, uh, to beat God in the end. Okay? Now, 
Robinson Crusoe runs the story by Friday, and Friday looks at him and he says, well, gee, I mean, you say that this, this big fight's going on, and, um, you know, I'm supposed to take sides, but you also tell me that God's more powerful than the devil, so why doesn't God just kill the devil and get it over with? And Robinson Crusoe has no good answer, right? <laughs> and in the end, he has to resort to uh, uh, an appeal to faith. He said, look, you know, okay, this story doesn't really make sense, but um, you just have to have faith that uh, it's okay. And I, I'm not ruling out the possibility that some, there might be some consistent way of articulating it. But um, uh, what I'm really doing here is I want to I make a distinction I think the problem with evil here is a theological problem. Evil seems problematic to uh, Friday because Robinson Crusoe has um, brought in this uh, complicated theological story about God and the devil being in a fight with one another. That's what uh, Friday and a lot of people actually have a problem with. The basic uh, view about evil, I'm going to argue, is rather simple. So there's this bare religious view that I'm trying to articulate there might be theological overlays on top of it which raise further problems. But let's just try and find the bare religious view. Now, as I said, I'm going to do this via the cognitive science of religion, but I want to take one more detour, and this is through Durkheim. And the reason I want to do this is because Durkheim has uh, attempted to do the exact same thing, or a very close, uh, closely related exercise. Now, so in his elementary forms of religious life, Durkheim proceeds as follows. He says, look, what I want to do is I'm going to um, conduct one, he calls it a well-made experiment. And um, I get this right once. I'm going to study one religion, and then I'll have a kind of prototype to explain all religions. And uh, his view was that he should study the simplest form of religion, and then the other ones just kind of build on top of it. So, and it turns out that Durkheim appeared to believe that Australian Aboriginal religion was the simplest form of religion. Okay? He could have chose any religion to study on his view, but he happened to choose what he thought was the simplest because it would be the most effective to proceed this way. Now, he didn't actually ever visit Australia. <laughs> he relied on the reports of uh, various anthropologists who did. Okay? And he drew some generalisations about Australian Aboriginal religion, which he then uh, made claims about that they work for all religion. So, and the key claim is that the main, uh, the, the core religious concepts are the sacred and the profane. And all religions, according to Durkheim, <coughs> are involved in this sort of key distinction. And what you're supposed to do to be religious is you identify <coughs> the sacred, uh, whether it be objects or people or practices, and you've got to regulate their contact with the profane world. Okay? And the basic reason why you've got to regulate their contact is because the sacred uh, sort of reproduces itself by a kind of uh, associationist logic. So, and you can kind of see this in uh, some religious terminology. Um, so the Shroud of Turin is allegedly the uh, shroud that Jesus' body was wrapped in. And because of this, it's alleged to have uh, sacred qualities, okay? Merely by being associated with the body of Christ. Similarly, the bones of saints are often alleged to have uh, some kind of sacred qualities. Uh, 
just because they were once the body parts of people who had uh, uh, a special uh, supernatural standing in a religion. Okay. Um, now he contrasts religion with magic. Because <coughs> you might be thinking to yourself, hey, that's interesting. There are all these sacred powers out there, and I can merely go around uh, creating more by association. Surely there's a way to make a buck out of this. Um, that's not a religious attitude. That's the attitude of the magician, according to Durkheim. So the magician is someone who seeks to take advantage of the sacred, where the sacred is understood as uh, <coughs> the parts of reality that are infused by sort of supernatural powers that are then uh, regenerated through this associationist logic. And the magician thinks, yeah, this is great, I'm going to um, uh, benefit from this. Um, whereas the properly religious person thinks, no, I have to show an attitude of respect to uh, the sacred. Okay, so that's a sort of, so to be religious, you have to not only buy the story about the sacred and the profane, you have to have the right attitude. Okay, and um, it turns out that having the right attitude is going to predispose you to form certain types of communities. So a big claim from Durkheim, Church of Magic does not exist. And the basic idea is all these magicians in Durkheim's terminology are running around trying to take advantage for themselves of the sacred, um, but um, they're not sort of busy forming communities. Whereas um, the properly religious, because they respect the sacred, they coordinate better and form communities around sacred objects. And this is Durkheim's uh, definition of religion, and this is perhaps the most famous definition of religion. There's a uh, hundred definitions of religion out there. This is the one you'll see the most if you start reading uh, religious anthropology or uh, other areas where religion is discussed. So religion is a unified system of beliefs and practices relative to sacred things, that is to say things set apart and surrounded by prohibitions. Protect the sacred from the profane, Beliefs and practices that unite its adherents in a single moral community called the church. Okay, so that's Durkheim's basic story. <clears throat> now you might say, well, okay, well, uh, where does evil get in? Well, it turns out you're not the only person who asked that question. The, um, perhaps the, uh, no, definitely the most well-known figure in moral psychology of the day, John Haidt, asked himself this question. Haidt styles himself as a Durkheimian, and he's come up with a definition of evil, uh, which is supposed to be based on Durkheim. And this is what he says. Evil is whatever stands in the way of sacredness. And uh, you can see how this is supposed to work. So uh, religion's all about the sacred, and evil, on Haidt's view, is uh, what's um, you know preventing the sacred. So on his view, uh, magicians will be maximally evil. I mean, magicians in the time sense. Um, but actually, this is either uh, I mean, Height just seems to be Height and his co-author seem to be unaware of what Durkheim actually says here. Um, and uh, Durkheim actually thinks that evil is a form of the sacred. So he says, look, uh, religious forces are of two kinds. Okay, um, so there are these uh, benevolent guardians of the physical and moral order, the spaces of life, health and all the qualities that mean value. That's one sort. On the other hand, there are negative and impure powers that produce disorder, cause death and illness, and instigate sacrilege. 
And Durkheim's claim is that both sorts are uh, forms of the sacred. So, more on this, all religious life gravitates around two opposite poles which share the opposition between pure and impure, holy and sacrilegious, divine and diabolical. Okay? And so he's keen to stress this. They're basically the same thing. There's the same genera, but different varieties of the same genus. That includes all sacred things. And his example, now I don't know who exactly he has in mind here, but his point is that um, basically you're, gonna, you're going to treat the good sacred and the evil sacred the exact same way. You've got to stop them from interacting with the profane world, but there's different reasons for doing so. One is an attitude of reverence to um, the good sacred, um, and to the evil sacred it's uh, an attitude of fear. You don't want them uh, spreading. Um, and um, there's scope for confusion here, and Durkheim seems to believe that amongst certain Semitic peoples, pork was forbidden, but it's not always clear whether it was forbidden as an impure thing or something holy. So his point is that uh, being evil in this religious sense is actually um, quite close to being a good, sacred form of good in the religious sense as well. Okay? So uh, in both cases, there's some kind of otherworldly power that's being imposed and our response to it ought to be uh, somewhat similar in that we prevent it from interacting we try to prevent it from interacting uh, with the world in a dangerous way. Both forms are dangerous. Um, this one's particularly, uh, the uh, evil one is perhaps particularly dangerous, but we've got to um, <coughs> treat them roughly the same way. Okay, now, do I anything to say there? No. Um, Durkheim was wrong about certain things. And he's wrong at a kind of uh, a basic level uh, that it's just not true that all religions uh, make this distinction between the sacred and the profane. Okay? Um, or if they do make it, they don't make it in the way that Durkheim uh, imagined. They, they might have some terminology for sacred, but they don't contrast it directly with the profane. Um, and you can see why he's gone wrong. It's his silly methodology. The fact that he's decided that um, instead of doing exhaustive study of religions, he's going to just look at one and um, try and uh, generalise out of that. That's, uh, that's a recipe for disaster. Okay. But nevertheless, um, his view has been surprisingly influential uh, in anthropology and also psychology. Um, now, but the trend in studies of religion since Durkheim has been away from generalising. So for uh, 80 or so years, people didn't go in for all this generalising about religion. What they did was they mostly stressed the differences between particular religions. But just in the last um, 15 to 20 years, people working in the cognitive science of religion, as it's known, sort of a mishmash of psychology, um, anthropology and cognitive science, um, have started to uh, stress similarities between different religions. Okay, and um, here are some similarities. So participation in every known natural human religion involves participation in ritual activities. It's quite striking uh, when you think about it. There's no particular reason why this should be. I mean, you can sort of 
it's perfectly logically possible to have a religion with no rituals, but just don't seem to have any. Um, now, similarly, every known religion appears to have some kind of role in shaping the moral beliefs and behaviours of its practitioners. Okay? Now, there's, there's a great deal of variation in this. Not all religions do so to nearly the same extent. Some religions are, are very effective and very demanding uh, morally on people. Some, are very, some have very limited demands, but they all seem to have something to say, something prescriptive to say about morality. And the third thing, and this is going to be the most important for us, is that every known religion involves the postulation of the existence of supernatural beings. <coughs> every last one. Now, you might say, no, um, what about, um, sorry, we'll go back. Um, what about Buddhists? What about Confucians and what about Jains? These are three examples that if you make this claim, people immediately run at you. And in fact, Durkheim himself considers, in his, when he's formulating his definition, when he's discussing it, considers mentioning supernatural beings, but he has this exact same objection. Okay, he says, well, I thought about supernatural beings, but now the Buddhists don't uh, really go in for it. Now, this just ain't right. Um, and again, um, I want to stress, I'm making a, uh, I'm trying to run a definition of religion here. I'm trying to understand religion, not theology. On the ground, Buddhists do usually believe in, in fact, almost all of them believe in some kind of supernatural beings. Similarly, Confucians, the vast majority of them believe in supernatural beings, mostly ancestor spirits. And Jains believe in kind of mid-level gods. What is true about these religions is they don't believe in a supreme being. Okay? But they all believe in some kind of supernatural being. Now, Buddhist theologians often do not, similarly uh, with the theologians of the other religions. And indeed, you can find some Christian theologians who uh, don't, believe in, uh, don't believe in God. Okay? Um, but, uh, now that's all very interesting, but what I'm interested in articulating is what um, ordinary religious believers believe and what they do. Okay? So theology is something that is overlaid on top of that. And it's more interesting and more important from my point of view that uh, your average Buddhist does in fact believe in divas, which are supernatural beings by any uh, reasonable light, then uh, that um, a, uh, a few Buddhist theologians do not go along with the story. Okay. Now, here's one more um, strong generalisation about uh, religion. And if you think about this, this is really striking. Every known human culture, both now and going back for tens of thousands of years, at least one religion has been practised. Now, there's no obvious reason why this should be the case. It seems perfectly possible, perfectly logically possible, to have a culture without a religion. But yet there are none. Okay? Humans just do not seem to formulate cultures that lack religions. Um, now, why is this? Well, a lot of people think it's because uh, religion is something that has evolved. Okay? So religiosity is uh, part of the human evolutionary story. Now, there's a bunch of different ways this, this might go. I'm not going to particularly uh, hoist my um, hat on any one of them. Um, the, 
different stories are there might be religion genes. Uh, religion might be an adaptation of groups, either genetic or non-genetic. Uh, there might be uh, some kind of story you can write about religion memes that uh, Dan Dennett uh, seems to go in for. Or it might be an evolutionary byproduct. This turns out to be the most influential view out there at the moment. <coughs> um, so the byproduct story is basically goes like this. Uh, humans have particular have evolved particular cognitive dispositions, and in virtue of these cognitive dispositions, um, you get you make systematic forms of cognitive error. And some of these errors dispose you to believe certain sorts of things that uh, are part and parcel of religion. And in particular, they dispose you to believe in uh, supernatural beings. Now, I'll just run you through the story here about why the byproduct people uh, think this. Um, and again, I'm not, I'm not sold on this story, but I think there's something right about it. It's in the right ballpark. So, Barrett, who's a, uh, Justin Barrett, who's recently at Oxford and has just scooted off to the States, um, uh, has come up with this term, the hypersensitive agency detection device. And he claims that um, every last one of us has one of these in our heads. It's part of our cognitive structure. Um, and um, what does the hypersensitive agency detection device do? Well, the basic idea is that um, it's strongly in our evolutionary interest to have uh, to um, over-attribute agency to the world. And it, it's a basic um, problem about false positives versus false negatives. The biggest threats you have in life are other agents, whether they be humans or uh, threatening animals. And the biggest uh, opportunities you have in life come from other agents. Um, so, uh, think about yourself as you're, you're a hunter-gatherer, you're, uh, uh, you're traipsing around looking for food or whatever, um, and you hear, a, uh, you hear a rustling in the bushes. Um, well, according to Barrett, what you're immediately going to do is uh, err on the side of caution and assume there's an agent, such as a, a dangerous snake or something, in the bushes, rather than say, oh, well... There's a possibility that it's a snake, and it's a possibility it's just uh, wind rustling in the, uh, in the grass. I, I don't know which way to go. Um, so you don't do that. Your immediate assumption is there's an agent. And indeed, it looks like there's lots of our behaviour that seems to over-attribute agency. We uh, see faces in the cloud. We see faces on the moon. We're, we're very disposed to... Um, and there are these psychological studies where people are shown uh, pictures of squares moving in the direction of circles and uh, they'll give you a complex narrative uh, whereby the square is supposed to be a male and the circle is a female and there tend to be some sort of rom-com story about what's going on. Okay? So we're very disposed, if at all possible, <coughs> if we can attribute agency to the world, we will. Okay, so he seems right about that. Now, how might this get you... Um, uh, attributions of supernatural agency. Well, Barrett's story, and this has been endorsed by other people like Pascal Boyer, is um, we additionally, not only do we go about attributing agency left, right and centre, we've got an extra disposition to accept and transmit attributions of minimal counterintuitive agency. So minimal counterintuitive agency, uh, what they have in mind is basically, and they sometimes slip into this terminology, 
is um, attributions of the supernatural. So something that violates our conceptions of what would, what would be natural, uh, but only does so minimally. And the idea is very much the same as Hume's idea when he's talking about why do people keep carrying on about miracles? Um, he says the passion of surprise and wonder arising from miracles, agreeable emotion, tendency to believe in those events, da-da-da-da-da. Barrett thinks much the same thing. Um, look, you hear these stories about the minimally counterintuitive agent, it's an enchanted tree, or it's, uh, it's a, a very powerful being that lives forever, and you just want to rush out and tell people about it. So uh, even though uh, not many people start out with these stories, um, they're, they're the ones you're disposed both to uh, transmit and to accept. Okay? And just because these, uh, these certain sorts of stories are transmitted a lot, um, so that's jumping ahead a bit, um, those are the ones that become current in societies. That, that's his story anyway. Um, one problem with this, uh, this line is, you might say, well, minimal counterintuitive, minimally counterintuitive, that sounds like there's only a couple of counterintuitive aspects to... Uh, the supernatural being that's going to be passed on. Yes, uh, but um, if you start looking at uh, theological claims about supernatural beings, uh, they often seem more than minimally counterintuitive. So uh, the uh, Judeo-Christian God, supposed to be all good, all-knowing, all-powerful, various other uh, uh, complicated things, Clearly more than minimally counterintuitive. Uh, people working in this area claim, look, if you ask your ordinary believer what they actually believe about God, they won't come up with this list. Or if they do come up with this list of complicated story, they, they, they won't stick to it. So Barrett's done this nice study where uh, he's asked, uh, he, he gives people a story about God, God acting in uh, two places at once. So... Uh, um, someone's praying to God and God's performing act X and at the exact same time somewhere else someone's praying to God and God's uh, performing act Y. And when they're asked to repeat the story they, uh, they uh, process it in a tricky way and it always comes out pretty much the same. God performs act A and then afterwards God performs act B. Okay? So they seem to have particular trouble um, accepting that God can perform the two actions at once. So the thought is even though a theologian would endorse this story, actual religious believers don't. And they don't typically endorse all the things that they might learn to repeat in church about God. They actually accept um, or practice with uh, some kind of view of God as minimally counterintuitive. Now, here's a definition that I've been running of religion. And all that's going on here is I've taken Durkheim's definition and uh, I've tried to update it with uh, all this uh, work in the cognitive science of religion. So I say religion is a collection of beliefs, always including beliefs in supernatural agents and practices, always including ritualistic practices that a community have in common which help to shape the morality of that community. So what's going on here? I've updated the definition, Durkheim's definition in five ways. I've removed the stricture that religion must involve a set of unified beliefs state right. Um, many religious beliefs are just not, they're, they're not unified in any interesting sense. They're just a hodgepodge. 
Uh, secondly, I've dropped the reference to the sacred. Not all religions employ this category. They don't always do it in a nice way anyway. I've also made explicit reference to ritual and belief in supernatural agency, because they always seem to come up. And I've removed the strict that religion always has to result in the formation of a church. Uh, mainly because uh, in pre-doctrinal religions, hunter-gatherer religions, you don't have anything as formal as a church. People just come together, perform rituals, and then scoot off. Okay? So it's, uh, it's certainly true of, all, of most doctrinal religions. There's something like a church, but not, uh, it's not true of all religions. Okay, now we get to the, uh, the business of uh, how I'm going to attempt to treat evil. And look, this, this is a bit speculative, so I'm kind of very interested in your feedback and uh, anything I can go here. Um, first thing is, uh, I think... Most, for most peoples, their god or the supernatural being that they are disposed to worship or supernatural beings that they're disposed to worship are disposed to worship are the ones that uh, they view as be having a, an attitude, a, a pro-attitude towards that people. So mostly, uh, if you look at some of the anthropology of religion, uh, different peoples think of a god for them, not a god of uh, humanity, a god for that people. And indeed, turns out that if we look at um, the sort of great monotheist religions of the world, they typically start out in such a place. So here's a little quote from the Old Testament. And what's going on here? Well, God turns out to be commanding the Israelites to commit genocide. Um, so here he says, um, uh, of these cities of these people which thy Lord thy God doth give thee, uh, God's kind of given the Israelites a bit of Leben's realm for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth, thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely, and there he lists the various people that uh, the Israelites are supposed to utterly destroy. Now, this is not an isolated uh, text from the Old Testament, it's full of this sort of stuff. It's an extremely violent um, book and it involves um, commanding Israelites to do all sorts of things that we would regard as uh, repugnant. Um, it's not just the Bible that uh, says this sort of stuff. If you look in the Koran, there's uh, an explicit uh, invocation to true believers to kill polytheists whenever they see them. Okay? And this is very typical of uh, most religions. They start out as religions for particular people and they might possibly be expanded later on into these more universal religions. Now, I think because um, people typically conceive of um, a god as a god for a particular people, that we need to understand the idea of evil in relation to this background belief. So, to say, here's, here's what I want to run with, uh, to say that an action is evil is to assert that it is conducted by or conducted in the service of a supernatural being that has a persistent underlying attitude of hostility towards a particular community. So this is meant to be a relativistic definition. Um, 
The God that says this is a good God if you're an Israelite. If you're a Hittite or an Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, da 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 da, this is an evil <coughs> This is an evil deity. Okay? So it's relative to the community you are a member of. Now, um, what about uh, evil beings that those of us who sort of in the Judeo-Christian tradition accept? Well, here's one. Um, here's Satan, and uh, this is the South Park Satan, but he's sort of relevantly similar to many other Satans. Um, and um, Satan is widely accepted. And um, <coughs> here is just a list of um, this is the most recent information I could find. It's, it's a bit hard to, I'm scouring the internet for some more stuff, it's a bit hard to find good information, but. Uh, respectable thing, a Gallup poll says 68% of Americans believe in the devil and various different groups believe uh, in the devil more so than the average person, up to 84% for members of the religious right. But the point is, the vast majority of ordinary people believe in at least this supernatural agent. In fact, the vast majority of people in uh, most religions, uh, sorry, all religions, believe in uh, supernatural beings, um, they, uh, they usually believe in a diversity of supernatural beings, some of which are hostile to them and some of which are friendly towards them. So the hostile ones will typically be ghosts or ancestor, cranky ancestor spirits, uh, there will be, there'll be uh, demons and so forth. Um, now, you might sort of think monotheist religions got away from that. Uh, well, two points on there. Plenty of polytheist religions around today still. But also, monotheism shouldn't be understood typically as the claim uh, that uh, there's just one supernatural being. What is the usual claim is there's one supernatural being that you ought to worship, and there's a bunch of other ones. And if you start looking in the Bible, you'll see this is the case. There's God. There's also Satan. Don't worship Satan. There's also some demons uh, floating about. Don't worship them either. Uh, then uh, there's some angels, uh, clearly supernatural beings, um, and there's various other characters appear. There's a guy called Baal, who uh, it's bad news to worship him, but he seems to be slightly different from Satan. Uh, da, 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 da. Now, how come um, people find this all so hard to accept? How come? Uh, when you hear all this sort of stuff about religion, you, you, you probably, if you've heard a talk about religion, it, it probably wasn't like this one. Okay? Um, why is this so? And why do you find it so hard to accept? Well, most of you are academics. Maybe all of you are academics. Um, and academics are weird. Uh, meaning they're Western-educated, industrialised, rich, and democratic. And in all of those ways, academics are unrepresentative of ordinary people. So if I tell you most ordinary people believe in um, goblins and leprechauns and uh, demons and uh, so on, or some, some subcategory of this group, you might yourself find it hard to accept. But there's plenty of evidence that this is the case. Um, and the problem is that you're very unrepresentative of ordinary people. The second problem is you're not going to get a good story about this out of theology. Why is this? Well, there might be various things. Um, one thing is that 
theologians uh, in the 20th century seem to have become very hostile to uh, certain aspects of traditional Christian uh, theology, particularly hell. And you can see there's a kind of uh, a good, well-meaning reason here. It just seems kind of harsh that God sends people to hell for eternal damnation, even if they've been very bad. That, seems, that doesn't seem like the sort of thing a loving God would do. Um, so if you don't like hell, you probably, uh, you probably don't like the devil uh, tempting you to go to hell and so on. There's, probably, there's a whole slew of uh, concepts you're uh, going to want to try and reinterpret metaphorically or just do away with altogether. Okay? So I think this side of religion has been downplayed uh, by theologians. Having said that... Um, it's still the case that uh, the, uh, the devil is on the books in the Catholic Church. He officially exists. It's not a metaphor. and really exists. Same with the Eastern Orthodox Church. And most Protestant uh, churches will want you to take a literal story about the devil. Okay. Um, a few, just a few brief comments about the intersection of... The religious conception of evil I want to run um, with uh, more mainstream uh, secular conceptions of evil. As I understand it, and I might have this slightly wrong here, there's a kind of debate um, that goes on in the uh, mainstream literature on this about whether evil is uh, just another term for very wrong or very harmful, or whether there's something more. Is it... Uh, uh, quantitatively different. So here's just a definition of how it might be quantitatively different. So there's this guy, Todd Cole, he says, evil involves an inexcusable motivation to bring about, allow, or witness significant harm for unworthy God. Now, I don't really have a dog in this fight. Um, I'm inclined more to the, it's just very wrong of you, I must say. Uh, on the and I think there is a kind of there's a hyperbolic sense of evil where um, people, in order to impress uh, others with the thought that uh, something is really really wrong, they'll say that's evil. Okay. Now I, I'm open to the idea that some of these these other definitions, there seems a lot of them out there, uh, could could have something going for them. Um, I, I think it's a bit. I mean. Uh, the use of the term, the secular use of the term, seems to me to be so vague that you kind of pick any of them if it's meant to be a kind of explication where you're taking the ordinary vague meaning and make it more precise. Um, I've kind of done that myself. I'm trying to take the ordinary, somewhat vague meaning of um, evil in the religious uh, setting and try to make it more precise. And I admit that, um, in actual fact, a lot of talk about evil is in... Uh, by the religious is just kind of vague. Um, and then you get a kind of theological overlay that um, is added to, uh, to this story as well. Um, one sort of striking difference between what I want to say about evil and what all of these guys want to say is I think evil can be quite trivial. Um, so religious evil can clearly be very trivial. Why is this? Well, um, both because ordinary sort of hostile supernatural beings, um, evil spirits and evil ghosts, um, if you start reading some stories about them, they're often very petty creatures. And um, they might just want to you know, play low-level tricks on you or uh, 
something like that. They're, they're not they're not often after a greater gain than uh, just making your life a misery. Okay, um, and uh, indeed, um, in sort of uh, many sort of preliterate societies, uh, when someone gets a cold or um, they fail to get pregnant or um, they have some kind of misfortune, that will be believed to be the result of the intervention of some kind of low-level um, hostile evil spirit. Okay? So um, there can be quite trivial acts of evil on that view. Another thing is even if you, uh, if you think, well, really the only um, uh, serious evil being I believe in is Satan, well, it turns out that Satan can still um, perform... Uh, uh, some quite petty acts. Uh, it's just that Satan's doing this as a kind of a, um, a big plan. So um, if I um, if I convince you to, uh, sorry, I really want a Mars bar. So you just duck out, um, go and steal a Mars bar for for me from the uh, the countdown. I know there's no one down there, but they won't they won't mind if uh, you steal one for me. So, now, if I acted like that, and I was doing it because Satan had uh, actually told me to try and corrupt her, <laughs> right, um, I would be acting evilly <coughs> in a religious sense, okay? Whereas, contrarywise, if I uh, actually was just because of my greed and Satan had nothing to do with that, it would be bad, but it would not be evil in a religious sense. Um, what else do I want to say? Oh, just one more point. Um, People often talk about the problem of evil. And you might think this has something to do with religion. It does have something to do with religion. What it's got to do with religion is um, there's a specific problem of how come God allows bad things to happen. But that's a kind of specific sense of evil, uh, where evil seems to mean just all bad things. Whereas I, I, and I take it that's, um, that's not really the uh, religious sense of evil. That's more uh, a theological problem. Um, I just have one more thing I want to say. Um, you might say at the end of the story, okay, well, where have we ended up? Um, I've given you a story about evil, and I'm trying to articulate what I think ordinary on the ground religious believers uh, are, are committed to. When they um, when they make ordinary attributions about evil, um, and you might say, well, okay, well, so what? I um, I just don't uh, want to go along with that because I don't like the dodgy metaphysics. But I think the metaphysics is pretty uh, minimal. So um, there's a kind of uh, I mean. Philosophers used to get terribly worried about uh, any kind of metaphysical commitment. So, you know, notions like causation get um, thrown out because they appear to involve uh, so, uh, some dubious metaphysics. Um, uh, but then it looks like um, uh, sort of Humean-style interpretations of the notion of causation uh, without the metaphysics, without the dubious metaphysics, don't see, really seem to work. I myself doubt that... Uh, you could have a religious, uh, a fair conception of what people are talking about when they talk about religious evil without introducing some kind of metaphysics. Uh, at the minimum, you're going to need a natural-supernatural distinction. Incidentally, I've, I've defended such a distinction in print. I think it's a perfectly coherent distinction. So I don't, I don't think it raises a problem. I'm not happy to talk about that, but it's a bit beyond the scope of this paper. 
Um, but um, what you're not going to need is a commitment to any kind of uh, theology. So the benefits of my view is uh, that it heads off the sort of problems that Friday had, that uh, you get stuck in this, oh, gee, do I really, have, do I really want to believe this uh, Manichaean worldview or some other complicated theologically driven worldview in order to uh, accept evil? I think uh, we can make perfect sense of evil without, without going there. And I'll leave it there. Thank you. So, um, oh, there's some references, although you probably can't read them. Great, thank you, Steve. Um, I'm now feeling very tempted to go and steal a Mars bar, but instead I'm going to opt for the much higher pleasure of introducing our respondent. Um, Dr. Philip N. Dean is a Jesuit priest. And he is also at the Campion Hall. Is it Campion? Is that Campion Hall? Yes, Campion right. Hall um, in Oxford, and he's going to offer us a different perspective. Thank you. Hmm. Um, I've been delighted to be at this conference because I've come across so many perspectives with which I'm pretty unfamiliar, and perhaps <coughs> the most unfamiliar of the lot was Steve's. Um, you know, obviously, I'm here in this slot because I, I'm from the theology faculty and because I've got an official position in the Catholic Church. Um, but the version of religion that Steve's putting forward in that paper is, of course, rather dismissive of theological rationalization. And it actually depends on driving quite a sharp wedge between the strictures of theologians and official representatives and the devotional promiscuity of the so-called ordinary believer. We have to remember that we are all weird. Theologians as well as secular academics. And real devotees of religion in some rather exotic way, which we might point to rather patronizingly, actually believe in this stuff. The our inquiry about evil seems to me to have been provoked in a new sort of way by the genocides of the 20th century, and perhaps given a nasty twist by George W. Bush. There seems to be a claim around among the philosophical papers here that somehow or other we need to drive some kind of quantitative distinction, qualitative distinction, between straightforward wrongdoing, misfortune, and snafu, and something more, something horrific, something which we call evil. And I take Steve to be suggesting that we, that we secular people might nevertheless fruitfully interpret this distinction by somehow retrieving, with the help of Durkheimian theory, a universal instinct that leads people to postulate supernatural, well, what he calls supernatural, what I'd rather call paranormal influences. The shift between wrong and evil depends on the invocation of agencies beyond human powers. That, I take it, is the main point. I suppose I have two comments from, as basically, as a Christian theologian. Uh, firstly, that um, it does, I would want to endorse the claim that that needs to be taken seriously. And secondly, I would like to suggest that theologically responsible versions of it are rather more attractive than the Durkheimian primitivism we've just heard. So, two comments. Steve is, of course, I think, being outrageously provocative. I don't know if it's deliberately <laughs> so. <laughs> I just can't help it. Uh, I mean, he's encouraging us civilised people to 
take seriously cultures and states of minds we're conditioned to regard as primitive. And to take on board ontologies of the supernatural that are hardly fashionable in contemporary academic philosophy. He's actually quite elusive as far as I can see as to just where we go from there. And I too want to be elusive though in a different way. Because I would, I think, want to be pretty agnostic about any ontology beyond what we can see empirically. Except to say that there's got to be something there. This conference has sought to discover theories of evil and try to find definitions of evil. that involves somehow understanding this force that seems to be able to get hold of people. Maybe what we have to recognise is that something is at work here which lies beyond our powers of control or explanation. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. Such wisdom as is available to us in coping with evil depends on a recognition that our power over it is severely limited. And that in the long run, we will do better if we accept that fact, rather than expend our energy in the mistaken belief that those constraints can in principle be overcome. <coughs> there are, I think, defensible versions of this point which don't involve us in eccentric ontology. Wrongdoing has cumulative effects. Other people's wrongdoings exert forces over us that lie beyond our conscious freedom. The second point, though I can't possibly explore all the differences between Steve's updated Durkheimian account of religion and what gets peddled normatively by theologians and church representatives like myself, there is nevertheless one assertion from that churchy world that I'd like to offer. When mainstream Jewish and Christian traditions make the move from wrongness and badness towards evil, they tend to bring in another word which I don't think has been mentioned all weekend, a three-letter word, sin. Sin in Western culture has got all sorts of unfortunate associations. It's a word that is not easily used and perhaps not advisably used. But it seems to me that when religious traditions of which I come make that move, the central thing they are doing is they are saying that although we can't deal with this thing called sin, God can. The fundamental implication of sin talk is that the God of, is not to cast us down or to fill us with guilt, but to hold out hope that the God of the Bible is able somehow or other to deal with all of this and therefore to give us some hope and to encourage us to do what we can and not to worry too much about what we can't. There are formidable philosophical problems here, of course, as even Man Friday points out. There are ethical ambiguities too, given that this sort of trust in God can easily lead to quite abhorrent complacency and laziness. But I'd suggest that the very fragility of Christian theodicies and Christian theologies of original sin lies in the fact that fundamentally Christianity believes in the fact that it comes right. 
and therefore it's got hard time trying to deal with evil. What actually drives a real religion forward is a sense of hope. It's worth the struggle. Things I've been handwriting this all weekend, and I can hardly read my handwriting in this computer age. Um, maybe what the religious traditions can bring to the very secularized context in which these sorts of things are discussed now is a sense that evil and wrongdoing actually cause problems which cognitively and practically we can never actually solve. Nevertheless, the impulse to do what we can is grounded in a basic goodness at the creative heart of things that can reasonably be trusted. And even if that Christianity is too much to stomach, even if, as in the line of Shakespeare, all is actually cheerless, dark, and deadly, perhaps we can be a bit more pr pr pragmatic. The most productive way of addressing evil begins by acknowledging that it has a power over us that we cannot control. As I get to the end of this response, I am reminded of the way in which the Alcoholics Anonymous program starts its 12 steps. And even if surrender to a higher power is ontologically far too profligate for us civilised people, at least we can take that first step, recognise there are problems we can never solve, and then do what we can do. Okay, uh, can I just, yeah. I mean, thanks for your comments. Um, I mean, I guess just to try and clarify what I was up to, um, I really just was <coughs> concerned with um, a literature and analytic philosophy that uh, purports to be trying to um, tell you what you mean when you say evil, and I think it's just missing out on uh, uh, a whole side of this. Now, and I've tried to uh, articulate what uh, this religious conception of evil is. Now, where you go with that and what uh, uses you might put that to, I'm, I really hadn't uh, thought through. And I, I doubt I have very, uh, very strong views, to be honest. Um, so, uh, people put up their hands just uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Wait, let's, no, let's... no, I, I think I've... Yeah? Oh, you're done. Yeah. Oh, right. Oh, fine. Great. Okay. Um, yes, please start us off. Yes, um, I'd like to hear a bit more from both of you, uh, of course, about the validity of the distinction between uh, theology and religion and the practice in terms of uh, the way people address evil. Uh, perhaps in your experiences, um, uh, talking to uh, religious people who do not necessarily involve in the theology, um, so my basic view, um, and this is kind of a standard view of the cognitive science of religion, is that religion is a natural phenomenon. Religion just sort of spontaneously happens. People uh, start just disposed to doing certain sorts of things, believing in supernatural agents and so forth. And then when you get a kind of critical mass of people, a uh, sort of another cast of people uh, comes along and... Um, organises this sort of natural phenomenon into organisations where you get a kind of uh, a structure developing and, that's, uh, and then they try and regulate those views and that's theology. But um, it's somewhat difficult to regulate these views so um, 
you know, Christian ministers have an uphill battle trying to convince people not to believe in ghosts and spirits and things that they're uh, just uh, spontaneously uh, disposed to believe in. And um, uh, I mean, there are a whole bunch of other ways in which uh, there's this kind of battle going on where theology is trying to constrain this uh, natural form of behaviour and succeeding uh, more or less. Okay, um, huge topic. Um, by and large, I think I'm committed to being realist about the claims that people make. That when another we start with this talk in this Durkheimian place and say there's a universal cognitive influence to postulate things, things around us. We, we all read Harry Potter, um, but uh, that has to be controlled by saying some of these things are sensible and some of these things are stupid. Um, I would then combine that with the fact that many people who are adherents of religion are, are normally actually extremely wise and holy, um, but they may not be conceptually very sophisticated. And so I would tend to want to sort of run a kind of hermeneutics of devotional expression. So if, you actually un if, you're, if you're actually in love with something, you will say things that won't make any sense to people who don't get that. And... You know, the kind of placing I would do would be much more about saying, you know, are these, you know, are, are, are these um, figurative expressions about ghosts and spirits and all the rest of it, are they leading people along a good path or one that's leading to something much more disruptive? That's where I'd start becoming normative. Okay. Um, so, third yes. Thank you very much. Um, this is maybe not really the central thrust of either presentation, but one thing that interests me is looking at how, in terms of uh, evolutionary biology or evolutionary psychology or evolutionary sociology, if you will, religion emerged from what origin, from animistic origin perhaps, uh, how we get to what we call religion, from animism perhaps, that was the root, um, and how maybe as, as a function, religion, sorry, uh, evil in a religious or animist context absorbs us from responsibility, maybe it has a certain function for us, but we need evil in some functional evolutionary sense. Well, I, I mean, I'm not committed to any one of the um, various evolutionary stories about how evolution um, evolved. I've got a paper on on it uh, with uh, Russell Powell, just kind of looking at the different uh, views. Unfortunately, this is so small you probably can't read it. Um, uh, on none of the sort of standard views about how religion evolved, a need for a concept, conception of evil to absolve ourselves uh, plays, a, plays an actual role in uh, evolution. There's scapegoating also as, as, as a possible... Brand. Well, there's that um, weird French theorist, uh, Girard, Girard <laughs> who carries on about scapegoating. Yeah. He, he's just not taken seriously in the, uh, in the evolution literature, I'm <laughs> sorry to say. Um, but, uh, I mean, look, it's, it's possible someone could postulate some kind of evolutionary theory in which uh, this, this does, in fact, play a role. And you could get up uh, a story about, uh, about evil playing some kind of evolutionary role. So it's a, it's a possibility. It's just not one that um, I'm aware of. And I've read um, pretty much uh, a lot of this stuff. Um, someone has actually rigorously done it. Yes, um, I'm very glad that, uh, that Philip mentioned sin, uh, because I think that does capture a lot of what is 
admitting perhaps in secular conceptions of evil. Whether or not there's such a thing, such a thing as sin, uh, is another matter. And it, I think it connects with the idea of, of idolatry, which seems also to be very much rooted in uh, religious conceptions of what is to be done and not to be done, the right way to think about God. And the problem is this, it's put up very nicely in a new book by Mark Johnston on, basically on, on saving God from idolatry. Um, idolatry. Um, obviously, um, thou shalt have no other God before me, so don't worship other gods, is a, a mainstay of Judeo-Christian theology. But the problem is that that's exactly the kind of thing a false god made. Thou shalt have no God before me. That's what, that's what a bad God would say, trying to deceive us. So yeah. how do you know who the real God is? Well, either you just rely on another authority, of which the same thing might be said, or you're left with something else. But the interesting thing about this is that you get disputes between people who, to the non-believer, would seem to be very similar and indeed very holy about who is really holy. Because if, for example, you take the dispute between Augustine and Pelagians, or in the Reformation between, say, those who emphasize grace alone and those who emphasize uh, the possibility of works, I mean, these people seem equally, almost equally rigorous and exclusivist in their theology. But each would regard the other as a very, as very sinful in a very subtle way, because a Pelagius thought that man's efforts alone could save us from sin, and we didn't have original sin. Terrible heresy, according to Augustine. Augustine thinks something else. Uh, Luther thinks something else about the world of... And yet, the point is that all these people may seem superficially very similar in their general moral outlook and the way they behave, and yet there are deep conflicts between these people, and there's a terrible risk in opting to one side rather than the other. If you've got it wrong, you're guilty of something very terrible. You've worshipped perhaps the wrong God, the wrong conception of God, and you're guilty of sin. So that's really the puzzle I found myself with. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, this guy called John Tian, who runs a kind of story about the evolution of religion, whereby he says, look, um, jealous gods are going to outcompete the other ones yeah. because they are... Uh, religions that have jealous gods are, go are exactly those that are going to um, push out the other beliefs. Whereas you get these uh, more tolerant religions that say, oh, you know, we don't really care if you, uh, if you worship this, that, and the other, just uh, you know, tolerate our beliefs as well. Those are the ones that uh, aren't really going to survive. So this is a kind of story about the... Uh, sort of uh, intrinsic intolerance of uh, the most successful um, religions. Now, I mean, you know, obviously this isn't a, um, uh, a story that uh, has fully played itself out, if you believe this, because there are plenty of tolerant religions around, and furthermore, um, religions that uh, have previously been intolerant seem to be becoming a lot more tolerant uh, principally Christianity and also to some extent Islam. So it, it, very hard to know. Um, um, but yeah, there's a, certainly a strong tendency amongst a lot of religions to uh, seek to prevent people from worshipping um, other deities or ones that are not recognised by their religion. Were you wanting to come on on this point? Or? If I, if I yes, could, yes. I mean... I suppose in the world in which I'm coming from, we don't just talk about religions being successful, we talk about them being true. <laughs> um, and it seems that one of the things we have to do is we, we start off with thinking that God is an Englishman. Um, and um, we gradually, as we sort of live in discipleship, we gradually realise that it's a lot more mysterious than that. And we are drawn into... A they are pretty mysterious to me. Yeah, yes, of course. But, you know, we, we, you know God, God, if God does exist at all, it's completely unlike anything which we can imagine. And the prohibition about idolatry fits itself in there. 
And basically, it's just, just sorting out the relationship between the true God and our destructive psychological fantasies is a lifetime business, and it's not straightforward. And I would want to interpret very broadly the kind of theological conflicts you're naming there in, 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 in the context of that business. Yep. Um, yeah, when you were um, talking about the view that all known religions um, believed in the existence of supernatural beings, you, you seem to treat that as an empirical question. So you talked about yes. the Buddhist as being a possible counterexample, but then you rejected that. So you didn't seem to be treating it as something that was just true by definition. Um, no, it's an empirical claim. The empirical claim is that actual Buddhists... Uh, no, 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 that's a natural claim, but the... Well, so that's a natural empirical claim, but whether all religions have held supernatural beings to exist, that could either be taken as an empirical question, um, or it could be taken to be true by definition, such that if it turned out that Buddhists didn't believe in supernatural beings, then you wouldn't call it religion. That, that's where I'm sort of coming from. So do you say it's empirical or definitional? Um, but, I mean, but if you do treat it as empirical, I just wonder what you think of um, what seems to be relatively common these days, which is to talk about, is to like broaden what a religion is, so people start talking about Marxism as a religion or sort of new atheist movements as actually a form of religion. I just wonder if you have any sympathy for that, and in particular whether that would have any implications for your sort of relativistic understanding of evil, so, you know, where you think about people like right. Hawkins thinking of religion as evil. So there's this kind of question about how you deal with empirically driven definitions. So I say, um, if it's a religion, it's got to meet certain criteria, and one of them is um, belief in supernatural beings. Now, it's also logically possible that there are people out there who uh, fit all the other criteria and yet don't believe in supernatural beings. I'd be willing, to, I think I'd just take that as a counterexample and say, well, clearly I was wrong. Um, religions don't all uh, uh, involve belief in supernatural beings. Um, but turns out that there are no such counterexamples. There are individual counterexamples and there are theologies which don't involve supernatural beings. But the people on the ground, uh, for the most part, believe in supernatural beings. And they are the adherents who I'm interested in um, describing. Now, as for new atheists and uh, Marxists, well, my definition involves supernatural beings. They don't believe in them, so they're out. Yes, please. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I just I missed something or misunderstood. I mean, you said that the evil arose in relation to a background belief that um, God is partial towards certain people. So does that does that mean? Because I remember being brought up in a religion where we were told that, that God loves everyone. So does that mean that evil? What's what's the place of evil? Okay, does, so does it mean it's kind of it's a mistake or that no, it's no, no. overall? In your <laughs> religion, um, in your religion is a kind of special religion because not many religions have made this move, but it turns out that yours has, where it's become universalized. So instead of God just loving uh, one people, it turns out that God loves all humans. Uh, now notice that God still doesn't love all species. You might maybe Peter Singh would have a religion like this that would be still more universal. But well, it's kind of like in Buddhism, isn't it? Really, because all little beings, all sentient beings, count. But, yeah, no but they God don't count as much. They're not. Sort oh, they of, do. It depends on what version of Buddhism. Okay, just, yeah. there, there might be some version of Buddhism where they all count exactly equally. That's that's a possibility. Um, 
Yeah, okay, there is. Um, it's not like normal. Suggest that people eat large animals rather than shrimps because there are, if you eat like small yeah, fish, then you're killing more beings. So this is it. This is it. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's there you are. There's my definition. Yeah. Um, oh, it's um, gone all water. So, I, I mean, I can accommodate your religion. It's just that um, an evil being for you is going to have to be one that has this persistent attitude of hostility towards all humans. So, whereas it's not just a persistent attitude of hostility towards all British people, but to all humans. Um, so, um, but fortunately, if you were actually a devout Christian, you would have believed in Satan. So, um, you've still got one. So you would or wouldn't? You would, yeah. That's, uh, well, I'm just statistically, <laughs> <laughs> statistically you, uh, you would have believed in Satan. Uh, maybe you yourself didn't, but Satan's on the books, as, uh, as I understand. Well, actually, I don't know that Anglicans still have Satan on the books. I'm not sure about that. So, do you have an Anglican background? Uh, well, I think Anglicans kind of more or less let you believe more in something. But look, um, the point is that this definition can accommodate expansion up to uh, the uh, universalised uh, scale. It's just that you, you now understand your community to be the whole humanity. So, but is, okay. is, is, can I just ask, is it, is it been being focused on the humans, um, or is it, is it yes. or just the devil? Focus on angels and God as well. Is it just only on the humans in terms of your idea of the evil? Is it focused just on? Well, I think it's crucial for the definition that um, Satan is hostile towards all humans. But uh, whether he's hostile towards hu all humans because he's got an ultimate um, goal of um, you know um, doing down God or something, I'm you know uh, I don't have a strong view. The crucial thing is that. Uh, He's got this position hostile attitudes to your community. Okay, we have five minutes and I think five questions, so I challenge you to do the math. Guy. No, no, try to be So you, you complain about your time focusing on this arbitrary example. Yes. And introducing into the definition of religion all these notions like sacred and profane and that are quite special in a way. So yes. You, you, you I complain about his methodology. Yeah. The, the so one religion, therefore yes, all yes. religions method. Seems a bit dodgy. So, and, and now you offer us a, a religious conception of evil. But you haven't actually shown that evil is a universal notion. And one could argue that it's a distinctively Christian notion. Uh, maybe you've just given a supernatural account of badness that maybe is universal. So, do, do Australian Aborigines have a distinct notion for evil as opposed to badness? But for example, in Hebrew, I don't think there's a clear word that really distinguishes evil from that. So, so a root word. I, okay. I, anyway, well, I mean, I see the concern. Um, <coughs> what I've tried to capture is this supernaturally... I've made the point that all cultures seem to have belief in supernatural agents, and all cultures seem to have belief in some kind of hostile supernatural agents. Um, and I've said, look, this is uh, the, the kind of uh, the word that best seems to fit into this is evil. And indeed, a lot of people will talk about evil this way. They'll, 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 when they start telling you about a demon or a ghost or something like that, they'll start using the language of evil. Christian. Uh, look, 
I, I concede I haven't done the sort of anthropological spade work I need to do to establish that uh, all these different people uh, start using the language of evil when they uh, discuss this subject. So it is possible that uh, a better word for it might be supernatural bad or something like that. And that evil Paranormal is Christian. Bad. Paranormal bad, uh, something like that. But um, as far as I'm aware, evil is not a particularly Christian word. Um, I'm, I'm sure you can find uses of the word evil um, that uh, are not uh, in the uh, Christian tradition. But uh, I'd have to uh, <laughs> come back to you on that. Okay, we have about one minute now, I think. So, uh, okay, yes, please. thank you. Uh, That's a very interesting discussion, and I just uh, uh, wanted to ask not about the evil part, but about your definition of religion. Uh Uh, And as I understand, you moved from what ordinary religious believers, as opposed to theologians, has has been problematized. Uh, And then to your definition, which includes the the account of supernatural things. I guess my question is just been about ordinary religious believers and how Mm. you make claims about that. Mm. Uh, Any example, if you take Judaism, for example, Mm. uh, and ask what ordinary religious believers believe, well, that's a huge range, depending on where your sample is. You go to a lot of, you know, walk the streets of New York and interview your average Jew, and there would be a great many who would be strictly atheist. Now, I think there are many ways you could accommodate this. You could say, well, maybe they belong to a a religious system in which there is a supernatural being, even though they themselves depart from it. But there seems to me uh, a lot of deviation from that definition uh, and some things that those ordinary practitioners would emphasize like identity, cultural history uh-huh. don't seem to be present um, and then the last example I don't know if you've heard the news from Sweden which has recently recognized a new religion called copymetism called sorry what? In, they, in Swedish it's copymetism it's about people copying on the internet the idea of copying and reproducing, copy me and send it out, has been recognized as a religion. So with that, would you try to make that fall within a concept of Well, I, I think the Swedes have not had the benefits of my definition <laughs> <laughs> religion. Well, they might have, uh, felt this. Having said this, the meme theorists would be very pleased that copy me is a religion. Um, Look, uh, I mean, I don't have empirical evidence about what exactly uh, Jewish people on the street believe, so I can't sort of directly answer you, but no doubt there are a range of views. Um, I'm making claims about what um, ordinary people uh, across most religions believe, and uh, my my grounds for this is a a bunch of work in the cognitive science of religion. Okay, thank you.